What I'm calling out is not that you can't ever succeed if you go down this path, it's that there's a lower likelihood of your success if you're operating inside of these production traps and thinking that's your primary job as a producer. That's the problem. It's value left on the table. Mm -hmm. You might have gotten lucky, but let's look across our industry. This is a low odds environment. You want to stack the odds in your favor. Welcome to Building Better Games. This episode is for game producers and the people they work with. We're covering one of the most common questions we've gotten since we started working with leaders and producers in game development. What is game production? We were surprised to look back through our podcast and realize we never actually answered the question directly. So today, we're going to talk about our view on game production, how we frame it, and how so many of us get it wrong. We'll cover what's the purpose of production? What do producers often end up doing instead? And finally, how can we spot the anti-patterns that plague production in game development? At the end of this episode, we want you to walk away knowing why game production exists and how to avoid the many production traps that are out there. Let's get into it. There are a lot of non-producers that listen to this podcast, which is great. And certainly there's going to be some bias probably from our background as producers by trade, but also from the companies we've worked for. Mm-hmm and the way that we view this. But I have to admit, the more that I see of production, I mean, we've worked with so many companies now that I think we have a pretty solid idea of how things work broadly across the industry. And I would say that um, the model that we use for production is atypical, unorthodox, and also highly effective compared to what the mainstream approach is. Yeah. We're going to have a lot of counterculture in this podcast. I think there's going to be a lot of things that people might hear and go, I've never seen that before. Or how does that actually work? Or I don't agree with that. Yeah. An advantage I see to some of that is because a lot of what we're sharing comes from working with a lot of different companies and talking to many producers that are out there doing the work. It's some of it's actually almost location agnostic. What we're actually talking about is what are the core skills, behaviors, approaches, attitudes that the most effective producers have regardless of where they are when it comes not to their own personal success necessarily, but actually to the success of the product and the team, the organization that they're working for. One thing I really want to talk about with you, Ben, is We use the word leadership a lot. It's a very watered down word in technology and in creative development in general. I kind of want to talk a little bit about what we mean and what we don't mean by that, Mm -hmm. because I realize that I use that word constantly and it means very specific things to me and Mm -hmm. means very specific things to us. But I, I am always somewhat nervous about how the other party is translating that in their head. A great example is like in most companies, when you're in quote unquote leadership, that means you're some kind of authority figure. You're some kind of decision maker. And that's not the way we view leadership. Like the way Ben and I view leadership is uh, someone is a leader when they take a group of people from where they are today and through their individual influence, they lead them to a different place, a better place. Yeah. So in other words, you influence a group of people towards a goal. That's leadership. And this covers not just the idea of some kingly figure with a lot of authority who makes decisions that cascade down and everyone has to follow orders, but it also 
really covers the case of the sort of scrappy on the ground leader who's actually helping the team every day. The person the team recognizes they could not do without, but may not have this sort of authority inherent to their role. Yeah. Like I think, uh, I think leadership can beget authority. Sometimes authority begets leadership, but I think more often it's the opposite actually. And so I think a lot of our views are going to reflect that. Yeah. Well, and, and we both view leadership as an essential ingredient to effective production. And I think that frames one of, in some sense, the biggest distinctions that we have from many companies, even very large successful companies in the industry with how they view production. They do not see producers as leading others towards a goal. They see producers as managers and leadership is influencing others towards a goal. Management is the maintenance and optimization of existing systems. At a big company where you're just printing off sports ball number 17 in a long line and you know exactly what you're doing and it's a very defined process, you want people managing the existing system. In a lot of game dev though, that leads to an inability of those producers to take on the mantle of leadership because the production role, you talked about authority earlier, comes almost always with some amount of authority with it even if it's just because you tend to have visibility into more of the system than the individual devs on the team. And part of your job is actually connecting those devs to that broader system in a way that will help them succeed. The mainstream traditional model for the production discipline is a group of specialists who manage the game project. Yep. And what we're saying is that we need to flip the script we need to or we need to change the story here to a group of specialists who lead the teams yep. who lead your people and they should be leading your people towards the creation of value and towards goals and all those things and again you might find yourself getting confused at a certain point and we often run into people getting confused okay well practically what's the difference one of the the key things that we're going to emphasize is that a leader internalizes responsibility for the goal and the outcome and uses the tools as a means to an end. Yes. So you can do a great job managing a project and get nowhere. That is a fail state in our opinion. Yep. Yeah. And I think that that you see that actually a lot with producers who are off maybe in a discipline silent organization and they're working with a particular discipline and they're constantly improving the ability. They're optimizing that system to produce more, let's say art or stories or whatever, and they're helping and they're working and none of it matters because the overall project is going up in smoke, but they kind of take their hands away from it. They take their hands off that wheel. They don't take responsibility for that overall system. And they just say, well, I did my job. I did a really great job. We went from only being able to produce one asset a week to being able to produce two assets a week. And that's because of, you know, the work that I did and the way that I changed things. And it's not that that's inherently bad, but if the overall project fails, it doesn't matter. And if you could have helped the overall project succeed, maybe one art asset a week would have been enough to actually complete the project. I can't remember who this quote is from. I think it was a woman who said, you lead people, you manage things. And I think there's a lot of truth in that as like a simplification of this distinction, this dichotomy between leadership and management, where leaders are going out there, like we said, influencing others towards a goal. They're going out there, they're finding others and they're getting them to follow. A leader without followers isn't actually a leader. 
And if there's no goal, then you're just acting somewhat arbitrarily or, you know, according to your fancy. But when you are able to use the resources at your disposal, be that your skills and attitude, be that actual resources, money, tools, you know, techniques, anything like that, to bring the people that are following you in the direction of a meaningful goal, that's leadership. So often we get wrapped up in the idea that we're managing things, that it's, this is about the tools. This is about the technique. This is about the agenda to the meeting. This is about making sure our report went out on time or whatever it is. And actually, this is about leading other people. It's about influencing those others so that they move towards the goal that matters. Okay, so production today. Production today in our industry, we talked about some of these things. It's broadly undefined. It varies by different organizations. There's very low investment in it. There's low training material for people in it. There's low support given. Often producers are alone. It's, a, it's kind of a solo discipline. They're out there like on either in a discipline silo or on a cross-functional team, but they're often the only producer or maybe there's one other one. So they're not constantly getting to sit down and engage with other producers around what's working and what isn't. This can make it stressful, the things that I said above. And also there's broadly a questionable work to value ratio of production because production is force multiplicative. They make Good producers make everyone else better. They don't add direct value. They don't like a producer worked for three days and now I have this block of code or this story written or this bit of QA testing done or none of that happens with a producer. They add indirect value through making everyone else better. So there's a questionable work to value. It's really easy to go like, well, I think the producer is not actually that important. And that may or may not be true. And it's very hard to tell. Yeah, I actually, I think when you see it work effectively, it's not questionable. It's actually so obviously potent oh, yeah. that you would never go back. But I think the problem is, is there are so many bad production traps that people yes. fall into where they either create a neutral outcome or I think more often than not, they create a negative outcome. Like an example is like, if you might have the coolest process in the world that you've come up with, but if your team hates it and it slows them down materially, like they have to spend 45 minutes a day messing with this stupid tool you've put together and it doesn't actually significantly increase their creation of value, you're now, again, you're anti-value. And, yep. and so, and it's, by the way, I think these types of scenarios are the reason why a lot of contributors have resentment towards production because it feels like, well, okay, here comes the manager to tell me to do a bunch of stuff that doesn't really help me that much. Yep. And then, and slow me down. Yeah. You can understand why. And that's the key thing. So let's go into some of these production traps. There's Bad th production traps. Yeah. There's some categories here that we're going to go into. And I want to say this up front. For most of these, we're not saying doing them is wrong at all. If you ever like, because we're going to talk about like, oh, someone who spends too much time on process, let's say. It's not wrong to ever spend time on process, but spending all your time on one or multiple of the production traps is actually a problem because it's not the leadership that we're talking about. It's not leading your team. It's managing things. Yeah. And it's not you focusing on value. It's often you focusing in a very, or not focusing at all, being very reactive. And in fact, going a step further, you at some point will have to take those specific actions and use those specific tools in order to be successful. It's how you use them, why you use them, and when you use them. That is what matters. Yeah. That is the thing that a lot of times people in these archetypes do not think about. Exactly. Okay, so let's let's dive in. First broad category, the sub-optimizers. 
Suboptimization is a real human pattern. It shows up in a ton. Production is vulnerable to it as a trap, as, as are so many others. The production style of suboptimization that we're going to talk about splits into three. One is sort of the tools or work management system expert. The second is the process person, this person who's just like obsessed with the process all the time. And the last one is the planner. We've alluded to all three of these already. So the suboptimizers are noteworthy because they tend to narrow in on a very specific part of the process layer of their organization. So for the tools expert, it might be something like Jira or ShotGrid. For the process person, this might be like, well, how are the meetings and what are the agendas and what are the retro formats is one I often pick on. And for the planner, it's what we were talking about earlier, that endless, like we have to plan, we have to follow the plan. And if the plan is ever wrong, we need to do a bunch of replanning. All of these people as producers are focusing not on the most valuable thing for the team to be successful, but have found this endless fountain of work to do because you can always optimize your tools or your process or your planning. And they've decided that that's where they're going to spend all their time. The problem with this is you really quickly in all of these areas hit diminishing returns on value actually provided for your team. And if this is where you're spending all your time, you do become this person who's kind of like the person with the clipboard who's walking around being like, hey, did everybody, you know, did everybody update their stuff in Jira? Hey, is everybody making sure they're using the tools properly? Hey, uh, what did you think of that retro format? I think I could make it better. These things are things you want people to do some of the time. They are not the things that are going to lead your team to being focused on the goal. And that's what this archetype misses. They miss the goal and they miss the cultural relationship even to the, the idea of tools and process and planning. They think it's all their job and that they're just going to own it. To me, one of the things that's interesting about the sub-optimizers, the ones we're talking about right now, is that um, they tend to create a lot of friction with teams. Like I think mm -hmm. most development teams, most game developers that are cynical about production, usually the things that they're most cynical about fall into the sub-optimizer category. It's like, yeah. like the person that's like, okay, guys, we're in a stand-up now. Make sure everybody answers the three questions and it's like hey i have a blocker that i just need somebody's help with which is again is a very goal-oriented thing right like we made commitments for the sprint i have a blocker i need to get somebody's help on it actually the most effective thing we could do right now is i could link with that person i could explain my issue they'd be like i can help you we'd link and we'd go pair up and solve it right then and there but so very often I see producers not focusing on collaborative outcome-based things like that. And instead they walk out of the standup thinking it was good when everybody answered the three questions. Correct. And, or I took some great notes and then I sent them out to the team and no one read them. Or like these things like this and it's like, you're focused on the wrong thing. Remember, there's an idea behind notes there's an outcome back there somewhere. And if you don't know what it is, you have lost the plot. And I think that that is definitionally something about these bad production archetypes, these bad production traps is that you've lost the plot. These are all tools. If your stance toward the team is like, you're the process person, and that's like literally all you are, that you're not valuable. I'm sorry, you're not valuable. Yeah. And by the way, I can't blame a development team in that scenario for being like, we could just do the work, you know, without that. Right. Yeah. So like what you want a development, what you hope a development team would say is thank these systems accelerated our progress towards clear goals so much that I literally could not imagine our team without a producer. Yeah. 
That's how you know that that team was impacted by a good producer. The one of these that I actually view as the most dangerous, though, is the planner. And it's the reason for that is because the planner doesn't just cause all these friction in meetings and with tools and all these things with their desire for compliance around all this. They actually also pull people constantly into meetings. Now, look, as a producer, have pulled people into estimation sessions, and I believe it was the right thing to do. But this person is just like, wait a minute, the plan's wrong. We need to all figure that out. And every time it takes a bunch of time from everyone, and in two weeks, the plan's wrong again. Because that's how plans in knowledge work environments often are, especially early in game development cycles. Also, especially when you take a more monolithic approach to planning as well. Yeah. So like a, a lot of these trained producers that are trained in traditional project management approaches create monolithic plans that will A, much more likely go out of date faster, and B, when they inevitably do go out of date quickly, they take a lot of work to reboot. Yes, they're not flexible. This is a huge pattern we see, especially at AAA studios, where it's like it almost becomes like an accepted running joke within the development team that this stuff yep. works. And and again, one of the red flags for me with sub-optimizers that I often see is when confronted with the fact that their systems aren't working, they're not actually leading the team in the right direction or helping them tackle that uncertainty. The planner would say, clearly it's because we don't have enough compliance. The tools expert would say, well, clearly it's because people aren't using the tool right or they're not following the instructions. And the process person would say, well, clearly because people aren't following the process or we need more meetings or we need more process. It's interesting. It's always more of the same or more compliance toward the same that is the answer to all problems. And underneath that is a probably genuine belief that if we did just do all these things just right, it would work out. And what Aaron and I are telling you is that while plans are helpful and process matters and tools are something that you're probably going to have to use to keep large groups of people going in the same direction, the idea that those things are going to solve your big problems is it's fallacious. That is incorrect. And so these people, by dragging everybody through all these things and acting as though more of them will somehow get us where we're trying to go, they're going down a logical trap. And that's why we call that the first set of production traps. By the way, before that, like uh, I want to say one more thing. Imagine a world where you as a producer came to a team and where they were just religiously answering those three questions and stand up. And you sat down with them and you had a conversation and you said, hey, I would love to see you all collaborating more and helping each other more. What if we just said, forget it to the three questions and instead we focused on who needs help today or we just did a quick two minute reminder, here's the goals. What could we change about what we're doing today to help meet those goals? And then you had a 15 minute group collaborative conversation about those two questions. Who needs help and what do we change to better meet the goals? Now, all of a sudden, you've turned that whole thing on its head. You've now shown your willingness to abandon a process in the spirit of leadership. So that's the change in thinking, the the attitudinal change that we're asking you to make. Yep. So second category here, I call this the unskilled supporter person or the team supporter person. Four different parts of that. These ones are a little bit different from each other, more different than the previous category. First one, though, is what I call the super coordinator. It's the person they are always jumping into 
and reacting to any need the team, other leaders, anybody has. They'll schedule a team morale event, you know, going to a movie or going to a restaurant or something. These are the note takers, actually. They're (laughs) taking the notes because no one else wanted to. Everything that you might do, whether it's a process, planning, anything, they're willing to just jump on and take it on. As soon as somebody says, oh, crap, I have a need or someone needs to do this, they believe their job is to fill that hole. Yep. Like the two people need to have a conversation. I'll schedule that. Oh, the team needs caffeine. I'll get coffee. Oh, the team has to stay late. I ordered pizza. It's like... And there's this deep desire in this individual to be helpful. The challenge with it is that similar to how I said each of the process tools and planning are infinite buckets that you can always improve on, but you hit diminishing returns really fast. The super coordinator is a slightly different problem. They actually don't know where value lies. And so anytime they're just reacting and they're like, oh, I can help with that. I can help with that. I could do that. I can do that. And often these people are totally overwhelmed. They're working incredibly late. Teams often love them because any menial minor task that honestly is really an intern level task you know, this isn't something even you need a college graduate for. They're just willing to jump on and take. And people appreciate that, that I don't have to do that anymore. One of the things I've seen actually is that sub-optimizers can create systems that are so heavy and so complicated that only supporters managing everything every day can keep those systems from falling over. So like a classic one is, is like, to me, I don't just think it's stupid for a team to only be focused about whether they got all their tickets in today. I think that's dumb. But I also think it's stupid when a team has accepted a process that necessitates everybody getting their tickets in all the time, but the team has decided they don't want to actually personally do that. So like shovel it off to the supporter. They're literally like the interface between the team who hates the process and the process itself. And the process, yeah. This is a disaster. And this you see this all the time. One of the things I'll say about all the unskilled supporter person archetypes, and we just covered super coordinators so far, and especially this one, is they've taken the idea of servant leadership and they've forgotten leadership. (laughs) They're just servants. And and by the way, I'm not saying that's bad. I think to serve is one of the highest things that we can do, but part of their role is also to be a leader. Okay, so that's super coordinator. Second subtype here is the information hub. I saw so many of these in the military. And some I've seen, I've definitely seen them. It's like Tyrion Lannister. It's like I drink and I know things. That's my that's my role here. Exactly, <laughs> right. There, it's this person and they're sitting usually at a, a translation layer or a, a, a connective layer between parts of the organization where producers often are. And they they're just constantly like, running around finding information and passing it to whoever it's supposed to go to. They don't think about that information. These are the producers who just have unbridled anxiety anytime there's a meeting going on that they're not in because knowing things and always being one step ahead of everyone around them with what they know is like kind of a part of their core identity. Yes. Um, It's like, you have a question? Oh, they have an answer to that. Or they can tell you who to talk to. Like, again, great skill, not a real job in my opinion. (laughs) No, exactly. And, And I think that the problem is, especially in large, complex organizations, there's so much information for them to pursue and move around. And by the way, those, if there's a connector element to that. There's actually a lot of science and data coming out that's showing that those people are incredibly valued and are incredibly valuable and often undervalued. So like, I think that those, those people that 
take on a role of being a hub between groups. We want to be clear. There's a lot of value there. But like also, I want you to be using that information to help people succeed. If you're not doing that, if all you're doing is just you're like a slot machine and somebody just pulls your arm and gets a, like a their fortune rat or whatever, like that's not useful. Third subtype, the team cheerleader. This is the person who's just always excited for the team and where they're going. They're always ready to pump you up. They're always ready to try to put a smile on everybody's face. They're going to push you. Throw a party. Yeah. Or have Friday, Hawaiian shirt Fridays, cocktail Fridays. Yep. And by the way, when everybody ends up totally crunching, because it turns out nobody took care of any of the things that would have prevented you from crunching, this person's right there with you, giving you a ton of encouragement and unironically unaware that they were the person who was supposed to prevent the crunch in the first place. Yeah. That dichotomy, by the way, is one of my favorite things to tell people about when it comes to this role. Because by the way, this role is a tough one to criticize. Like this whole bucket is tough to criticize. This one in particular is hard to criticize. Like I've seen producers who made their careers on this role. Yep. Actually, who like, who just were not necessarily great leaders, but they made the team so happy by pumping them up in this way. And they made everyone else so happy by pumping up again. Want a caveat, valuable skill right? Very valuable skill. Production is hard. These things are hard. Having somebody pump you up is kind of nice. That's something that could actually push the team towards the goal. It's a galvanizing thing, right? Yes. However, I've seen people that only did this. And again, that dichotomy you just brought up, which is like, wait a second, why was this team in the here in the first place? The leader part of you, like the true leader part of you would have internalized responsibility for the fact that your team had to crunch And been like, okay, at the very least, I need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So if you're not having that conversation, you're not leading, like you're just masking it over with party favors. That's not, a again, not a real job in my opinion. Okay, so the team therapist is the other side of this. And I put therapist in quotes here. um, And I want to be really clear as to why. I see this all the time on social media and other things. And I know people are probably joking. But honestly, I wonder sometimes if they think they're serious when people are like, man, I'm just... My friends always come to me. It's like, I'm their therapist. Okay, first, maybe you're just being a friend and hearing somebody and talking to them. But second, no, you're not a therapist unless you're actually a therapist. And if you're a therapist, you don't do therapy on your friends. Therapy is an incredibly difficult skill set. Producers tend not to have it. And if they do, they certainly shouldn't be doing it on their teams because that would be a clear conflict of interest. It's a cheeky phrase that people are using to describe the reality that we're in. And again, I think that this is quintuply true since COVID started, mm-hmm. which is that most people are having a tough time. We have a lot of new systems to adapt to. So a lot of leaders or a lot of managers have taken on the role of sort of emotional support. Yes. And again, this is a tough one too, because it's a valuable role. Yeah. People might hear us and be like, well, and think we're saying that emotional support isn't valuable. It is valuable. But again, as a tool, you're hired by a company that pays you money and you are serving an audience that pays everybody in that company's paychecks to add value to that audience. So it's perhaps necessary, definitely not sufficient to provide emotional support to your team. Like if your role is I show up and I make people feel better, unless you're literally the company therapist and then I hope you're actually trained, you're not actually doing your job. Again, that's not what producers are. And now I wanna be careful here because I've talked to a number of very seasoned and skilled production people who have described that much of their role has become this recently. 
that like sometimes up to half of their their roles are like just providing emotional support for the team. It may be the case that if your team is in a difficult emotional place for whatever reason, like let's say you just got bought out by another company and there's a big leadership turnover and you're trying to keep people from quitting. There's many scenarios I can imagine where that being your primary role could actually be valuable. But again, you're still thinking through the lens of like, how do I get my team through this to as close to the goal as possible? If your primary skill set is just about coming in and making people feel good, and by the way, at worst, commiserating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then you have to be really, really careful. When this is where this is that opposite side yeah. of the cheerleader, right? The cheerleader is the optimistic, positive. Yeah. We can get through it galvanizing a sort of force. Yeah. The therapist is the one who takes everybody when they're in the down spot, the emotional lows, mm -hmm. the crunch is causing burnout and team members are really questioning the value and all these things. And the therapist is this person who almost talks everybody back from the ledge, you know, like, okay, no, we can keep going. I know it's tough. Yeah. And like you said, this can often drift to a bad place of really just hearing everybody venting and complaining. So that those are all of the unskilled supporter person archetypes. Like I said, the servants without the leader. So this last category is different from the previous two. It suffers from some of the same problems in that there's a lack of, of focus often. But this one is that the, the last category we call the actively dangerous. And the actively dangerous category relates to people who believe that they are right for some reason. And sometimes that's based on ego and arrogance. And sometimes that's actually based on insecurity and or a malformed idea of what it means to be a producer or a leader. And by the way, I want to add a third in there that we touched on that we often don't acknowledge, which is um, they might actually be right. Oh, yeah. That doesn't make it less dangerous because as we articulated earlier, it doesn't matter how right they are, how much experience they have or how much truth, quote unquote, that they know about the production process, because what you're required to do as a leader now in this complex world we live in is you have to distribute that understanding to the team because you yourself will never be able to make every single decision necessary. You yourself will never be able to know everything at in a timely way necessary to make every decision you need to make. So if your policy is I'm in charge, I'm the central authority, your team's going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. So the three subcategories, the first one is what I call the always has an answer. I want to give a lot of empathy for this producer because most of the time that I've seen this, this is actually born from insecurity, not ego or incredible confidence. It can come from either. But this is the person who believes that a producer's job is to always have a swift and confident answer. Regardless of whether they really understand the question, they will walk into a meeting a few minutes late and everybody will be discussing something and maybe there's some sort of healthy debate, but it might be a little heated at times. And this person's like, okay, bah, we're going to do this. And they, they just jump in and often you, you look at them and I've done this by the way, and it's not helpful to the team, but you're just like, I'm going to use the authority I have as producer and therefore leader in this space to just make a call because you know what? That's what I've seen all the leaders do around me my whole life because that is a really common, I would say leadership anti-pattern is you're the person who has all the answers all the time. And you get the team into immense problems because you'll constantly commit them to things. You walk into a meeting with stakeholders and they'll be like, well, this is a problem and this is a problem and can you solve this? And you won't say, let me go find out. You'll say, yeah, we can solve that. We can solve that in two weeks. Well, your culture may not allow you to say that. And, that, Correct. and that's something Ben and I talk about often. 
Go listen to the podcast on incentives if you don't know what I'm talking about. But one of the things we see most often as far as incentives for producers is like, you're the person that needs to come into a room and have answers. You're the person that needs to make, create certainty where there is none. And again, by the way, Ben and I would agree that a core role of a leader, i.e. a producer, is to actually create certainty where there is little. But the way you go about that is everything. If the way you create certainty when there is none is you just say something that sounds really certain, that is called being dishonest. Yeah. So I wanted you to talk through the expert masquerading as producer archetype. Yeah. So this is a simple one and it is somewhat overlapped with the always has an answer. I've seen a lot of in enterprise program managers, it is actually more common in enterprise, but it does happen in game development as well, where there is a pattern I see of people going into production because they think that it is a way for them to achieve a higher level of authority um, and to use the compliance that is baked into that role as a way to almost like further their own agendas. Yeah. So like I've seen like an artist or an engineer who has strong opinions on art and engineering become a producer and then make all the artists do art the way that they think art should be done. And to me that that is a dangerous archetype because you're actually you're misusing authority to force out autonomy, agency and empowerment from the team. So you're actually, you want a definition of anti-value back to what we were saying earlier. You're, you're actually making a team less able to make its own decisions and therefore robbing them of the thing your team needs to actually succeed. And another manifestation of this I've seen is, you know, not knowing the difference between your old role as a disciplined contributor and your new role as a producer. An example I saw was I've worked with a lot of product managers actually um, in my career that were ex-engineers. And one of the things that they would do is they'd come in and I'd be like, okay, welcome to the meeting person who sets the goals and prioritizes the backlog. And then the first thing they would start doing is needling all the engineers on their specific implementations of like how they were writing the code and just trying to really kind of in a self-aggrandizing way, like show off that like they could hack it. Like they, they used to write code too. Like, yeah. look at all the stuff I know. Why didn't we use this component instead of that? And I'm like, that's not your job. If you want to be an engineer, be an engineer. If you want to like have a fun lunch conversation about tech with the engineers, do that. But like when you show up in this room, show up as a producer or show up as a product manager, like do your job, be in your role, support the team in the thing that they need. So please be the producer. Don't be the expert. That's not helpful. One, we are not saying producers can't be experts, but they are experts in production. They're not experts in the same way that an artist is in art or an engineer is in engineering. And even if you are, the first one is the thing you should focus on and show up as. Yes. And the second thing is in smaller teams or in scrappier companies, sometimes you got people dual adding, right? You have an engineer or a QA or a designer who's also functioning as the producer of the team. We're not saying you can't do that. We are saying you have to now handle the separation of concerns and recognize when you're doing either of those roles. If you're an individual contributor and also the producer, you are adding to the team with what you do and you're also force multiplying everybody else. If you conflate those two things, you are going to disrupt your team. That's not where we need you. Production is there for a purpose. If you don't believe that, please don't be a producer. Last one. I'm going to let you talk through this one as well. 
the authoritarian taskmaster. Yeah. This one is, uh, again, that's that Taylorist uh, centralized authority management archetype in a nutshell. We've already covered it quite a bit. It's like a more extreme version of the planner almost. Yeah, it's in some ways. I think it's somebody, again, that views compliance as not just necessary to create value, but also views themselves as the ones that enforce compliance. So basically, I've seen producers that are like this, where it's like they they actually wield an uncanny level of authority over their teams. Like these are companies where the producer is in charge, even to the point where I've seen like individual developers on the team report to the producer, which I personally think is like a really bad model. Like, I don't understand why you would ever do that. And I know there's going to be people that hear that and they're like, oh, there's all kinds of ways that this makes sense. And I'm like, I'd love to break that down with you because I don't buy it. But I think what that does often create is a scenario where you just know that the producer calls the shots. And then the producer has the ability to say, hey, look, I set up Jira and this is the workflow. And guess what you're using? There's no conversation around that. There's no like if the producer is enlightened enough, if they're an enlightened dictator and they've just created the perfect system that adds all kinds of value, great. But more often than not, what I see is that the team just has no agency. Yeah. And it becomes irrelevant whether the system adds value or not because the system is what we use and that's it and that's final. The producer says so. And like I think that this is, again, I've known a lot of producers who are in this role, by the way, who are actually really great, well-meaning people who out of the kindness of their hearts try to show up as of a friendly disposition and as a supporting disposition to the team, but they never let go of that authority. And like, to me, I don't think that this is, I think that this is a damaging thing. Again, in the context of this uncertain creative development world we're working in, you need that team. These are often the teams who just don't understand anything big picture because the yeah. only thing they're doing is just waiting with their hands out for the taskmaster to give them their next thing. Exactly. And they just have no connection to the greater whole at all. The always has an answer. We said that was actively dangerous, right? Yeah. Because any question that comes in, they're going to provide an answer. In this case, again, it's a more extreme version of that plus the planner almost because the authoritarian taskmaster is the answer and no questions are allowed. And I think one of the things that is true in this to speak to the Taylorist philosophy I, that's behind this, you view your people as machines and your job is to get as much out of those machines as possible. And also to reduce their human Volatility. Volatility from the system. Games have been built with any and all of these as the dominant model of what producers were doing. And successful games. There have been plenty of successful games made with no producers at all, right? To speak to the Naughty Dog example. I'm not saying if you do any of this, you, know, you might be like, well, I did that and it worked. And I'm like, well, what do you mean it worked? And what I'm calling out is not that you can't ever succeed if you go down this path. It's that there's a lower likelihood of your success and especially your sustained success if you're operating inside of these production traps and thinking that's your primary job as a producer or if the studio views these things as the primary things producers or even leaders are supposed to be doing. That's the problem. It's value left on the table. You might have gotten lucky, but let's look across our industry. That's that's already just part of getting a game out there, right? Like we like to say the 5%, 5% of games that enter production are become profitable at any point. This is a low odds environment. You want to stack the odds in your favor. 
So maybe you had a bunch of toxic authoritarian taskmasters, but the idea happened to be good enough and land at the right time that it worked out and everybody was successful in all these things. The worst thing about that to me is that we learned the wrong lesson, that a bunch of people learned this is how you make games. And it's not how actually you sustainably make games. And what you often see is those companies try to make a second game or a third game and fail horrifically because they kind of got pretty lucky the first time and it didn't happen a second time. Okay, you probably saw yourself in some, maybe many of these. One of the things I want to call out, again, just because you're doing some of these things doesn't mean you're making a mistake. Outside of the actively dangerous category, there's a time to pump up the team. There's a time to focus on the plan. That's okay. The question is, is that all you're doing? And if you're all you're doing is any combination of these things exclusively, that's where we would say there is a problem. Because the remember what we talked about, leadership is influencing others towards the goal. Your job is to create an environment where other people are moving towards the goal. You need to have that goal in mind. You need to be seeing the big system and you need to be willing to blow up anything that's getting in the way, including the process, including the plan, any of these things in order to help your team succeed and get to the goal. All right, let's close up for today. Always remember, producers are leaders that solve problems on multiple layers. They create an environment where teams can succeed. Success is delivering value, achieving the goal, and serving the player. We'll reinforce that again when you join us next time. So key points to remember for this part one podcast as we close up. Number one, beware of the common production traps. They're mistakes we've all made and they're not inherently bad, but when they become the point, we've lost the plot. Number two, understand the difference between management and leadership. Know which stance you're in and understand that leadership is at the core of this role. Also keep in mind that you have to be working on your leadership stance all the time because it's going to be more necessary every single day you continue on in this career. Number three, leading means upending things, changing things, and building systems from scratch when necessary to achieve the goal. They are a means to an end. And again, as we talked about all these production traps today, you'll see a common pattern of the tools, the methods, etc., becoming an end unto themselves. We'll talk more about this next time, but that's the real trap to avoid, to lose your focus on the goal and to believe that if you just create a great enough process or you just have good enough answers or you just pump up the team enough that that's going to create outcomes. That is not true for starters. And two, it's not you fully internalizing the goals and responsibility for the goals as a leader. Great. All right. If you enjoyed this content, every two weeks, we deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game. It's a newsletter. Join game developers across the world and sign up for it at buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. That's buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Thanks for listening.